picking up in Mark 12, uh, starting verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, God's word, whenever we're in God's word, it's always got something uh, significant to say to us, but uh, we're really getting to some core issues this morning, so let's pray for wisdom. Father, we need you to speak to us by your word. We need your spirit to be at work so that we can hear it, so we can understand it, most of all, so we can live it out. So we ask that you would send your spirit in the name of your son. Amen. Well, who's good and who's bad? That's a central question to human life, isn't it? I mean, if we're thinking about, these, about who we are, what makes our lives valuable, meaningful, a central question is what it means to be a good person. And by contrast, what it means to be a bad person. Uh, I was thinking about back in my childhood, in the 80s, the, uh, one of my favorite toys was the G.I. Joe action figures. Some of you know these, some of you don't. But, you know, G.I. Joe was the good guy, the real American hero. And then there was Cobra, the bad guys. I wasn't allowed to have any Cobra action figures for a while. Because they were the bad guys, right? You know, I, well, it was, you know, it was unclear what their aims were. I'm not sure if they were communist or fascist or whatever. What, you know, whatever they were trying to accomplish, they always had a plan to take over the world. You know, whatever, whatever they were going to do with it after that, we're not really sure. But, um, but I wasn't allowed to have the Cobras until I ended up at the toy store with my grandmother. And my parents weren't around. And I convinced her to get me one of the Cobra action figures. I'm pretty sure it was Storm Shadow, if my memory serves me correctly. But uh, one day maybe you'll figure out who Storm Shadow is. And you'll be better off. Um, but I, I, I get this character, of course, and you know, bring this action figure home. And my parents realize it's one of the bad guys. And they say, Jeremy, you know the rule. And I answered them, ah, but I told him about Jesus. <laughs> and he's accepted Jesus into his heart. What could my parents say? You know, I mean, like, there's nothing, 
nothing like, well, I, I just, they could have talked about, you know, is he mortifying the indwelling sin or something like that? I don't know. But they, they didn't go that way, thankfully. Uh, they had nothing left to say. He had become a good guy, right? We're really concerned about who the good guys and the bad guys are. And we're really concerned to make sure that we're on the right side of that. This is uh, a question that comes at Jesus from a real religious professional, a scribe. Now, some of these other groups he's dealt with are kind of different groups. They're not necessarily all religious professionals. But here, in this final kind of confrontation, the expert steps up. And he asks Jesus this question, which commandment is the most important of all? And he's not asking as a trivia matter. He is saying what makes a difference between who was a good person and a bad person. In religious speak, this is the question of who is righteous and who is not. And real righteousness, we'll see, grows out of love. Real righteousness engages the whole person. And real righteousness comes from somewhere else. It comes from love. It engages the whole person, and it comes from somewhere else. So let's, let's see how Jesus does with this. So he starts to answer this question. How, you know, what is the most important commandment? And he goes in verses 29 and 30 to the Old Testament, of course, and to Deuteronomy 6 in particular. This is a passage known as the Shema, because the, the, he, the first Hebrew word is Shema. Hear, listen, it's the command, listen. Uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Uh, to this day in Judaism, I mean, this is central. The, the Deuteronomy itself is this fi- farewell speech that Moses gives, and he kind of reiterates the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second law, the second giving of the law. And he opens by kind of recounting their history of the Exodus and all this. And then as he really gets into the meat of the law, in chapter 5, he reminds them of the Ten Commandments. But then as he gets into 6, this is sort of his summary of it. And it's, it stands as a reminder of who God is, that no one rivals him. He's one, right? In a, in a polytheistic world, God is distinct in that there's nobody else that's on par with God. He is the one that is above it all. And so we must love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and we know that, by the way, in the Jewish tradition, even in Jesus' time, this was considered still a kind of the summary statement. If you had to have one line, this is it. And then he goes to Leviticus 19.18 in verse 31. He starts quoting from Leviticus, which is the, you know, which is the line, love your neighbor as yourself, which was also considered a kind of summary of how we're supposed to treat one another, also in, in contemporary Jewish sources. In other words, if this scribe had been asked the same question, he probably would have said basically the same thing. No wonder he approves of what Jesus says, right? He, he's like, that's right on. But it's helpful to, to see this in a particular light. That, you know, where the moral law is sort of summarized in general, we say, in the Ten Commandments, 
this reframes it. Because the Ten Commandments, if you remember, eight of them are prohibitions. Do not. Do not do this. Do not do that. But this is the positive command to love. And this is strange, right? Because when we think about morality, when we think about moral law, and we think about love, we tend to think of those as being in opposition with one another, not connected. Uh, part of this is a very long history that goes back, especially in Western thought, goes back to the Enlightenment, where, we, where kind of our natural desires were seen as good and the constraints of society were seen as bad. That were put on us, we have, that has kind of expanded into what philosophers call expressive individualism, and this is the default, really, operating system of all of us, in the Western world, at least, right, is this idea that there's something true about who we are, and when we're asked to conform to something else that doesn't feel natural, we are suspicious, to say the least, if not outright opposed to it. And this kind of expressive individualism, whatever its merits, right or wrong, runs through Disney to the way our athletes talk and into our politics. And the difficulty with it is that it's unworkable. The reason it's a, it's a problematic way of viewing things, even though in many ways it is our default way of thinking about things, is we all know at some intuitive level there are some rules, right? There are some things you shouldn't do. And, you know, to the degree that we see it in politics, right, I mean, this is just about which rules we think you should or shouldn't do, right? So if you're kind of, you know, left-leaning, there are certain thing, rules you think should be in place. If you're right-leaning, certain other rules. But it is this problem that we think that law and love don't really meet, that the moral rules and the truth about how we care for others or want to be cared for don't match. Now, I'm not saying that everything everybody has ever put forward as moral is necessarily good or true. What I am saying is what God calls us to is. This is why that beginning of the, of the Shema is so important. God is one, because God is the one who stands above all. In fact, the moral law is made in, after his character. So, you know, law, to put it one way, gives shape to love. God's moral law, not just anybody's moral law, God's moral law gives shape to love. Let me give an illustration of this. Um, Have you, ever been, have you ever thought, I'm going to tell a lie to this person because it's just going to make things easier, right? But we're going to have to have this long conversation if I actually tell them what's going on. Uh, everybody's been there, right? Everybody has thought that, okay, and if we're being honest, probably everybody has actually told one of those lies, right? Well, What's weird is when that starts to become a, a deep pattern. So that, you know, I've worked with any number of folks who had, you know, chronic lying in their families. And, you know, there's always an excuse. 
Uh, you know, I really wanted to make sure you were there, so I lied to you. I really wanted to make sure that you didn't know about this, so I didn't tell you the truth. And, you know, it may not be obvious in the moment, of course, when you're, you know, it seems like I'm just telling a little white lie, it's not that big a deal, I'm just avoiding an awkward conversation. But the more consistent it is, the more obvious it is that it undermines love. So law gives shape to love, but also, look at this, love gives power to the law. Because we all know what it's like uh, to know people who are all about the rules and don't seem to care a lick about the other person. You might say then that, you know, this might be the person that is honest, but brutally honest. They probably pride themselves in being honest. But they're honest in a way that has no concern for you. Um, A way to maybe think about this is that the law is sort of like the container, right? If you want to enjoy a glass of wine, you actually have to drink it in something. If you go to a vat and just try to open it up over your face, right, it's just going to go everywhere. Um, it's going to end up damaging your clothes. It's going to end up, you know, spilling everywhere. Things are going to be wasted. But you need a glass, right? You need a glass to appreciate the color. You know, a wine glass is designed to emphasize the bouquet, right, of the, of the wine. Like, so that you can actually appreciate the smell. I mean, all those things will go into it, right? That's why the container of the wine glass is, is significant, so you can actually appreciate the wine you're drinking. But if you, we don't have the law, then we're just like trying to drink out of the vat. <laughs> On the other hand, you could be walking around with a wine glass at the party with nothing in it. And you're convinced you're doing the thing, but you're not actually enjoying what's been given. So, If we pit law against love, we are buying into a real trap that Jesus warns us against. Again, we sort of romanticize a version of of having love without having the moral law, but uh, I don't think it's working very well. Uh, A couple months ago, the Atlantic ran a piece called A Shift in American Family Values is Fueling Estrangement. It's by a guy who's a therapist, and he was talking about uh, how, you know, increasingly there are people who are just cutting off their families. Now, let me, be, let me be clear about one thing. He's not talking about abusive families, right? Just be clear about it. There are times to, where real, firm, hard boundaries need to be drawn. He's not talking about that. He's talking about families that were seemingly pretty loving. He says this, deciding which people to keep in or out of one's life has become an important strategy to achieve happiness, And while there's nothing especially modern about family conflict or the desire to feel insulated from it, conceptualizing the estrangement of a family member as an expression of personal growth is almost certainly new. And he's kind of documenting how unhappy that ends up leaving everybody in the long run. 
It's an example, of course, of laying aside the idea of honoring your father and mother. It's, uh, it's challenging. We are searching for family, for friendships, for romance that is honest, that is faithful, that's trustworthy. And the less we think we can lay aside the way God has made us, the more troubling it becomes. And we are lonely and afraid of being hurt. You know, that's trying to love without the law. But again, if we try to do the law without love, we end up with a kind of classic legalism. As decidedly metallic, however faultless it might seem, especially on the outside, it is so much concerned with its own uprightness that it's lost the focus. And of course, with churches, the primary mode this has been uh, in recent decades has been the culture war, where our focus has become on winning rather than loving. And I'll say this because ministers have often set the worst example. And I don't mean to take the sting out of the law. We will talk more about that in a moment. But if we're talking about the law in a way that doesn't communicate the beauty of the character of God that it's supposed to represent, what are we doing? If we're more concerned about controlling the culture than actually loving our actual neighbors, we have left the way of Jesus. But what would the law with love or love with the law look like? Somebody who's actually deeply concerned, who tells you the truth, who is faithful, who isn't looking for a better deal. I mean, isn't that what we want? Isn't that the kind of friend you want? Isn't that the kind of partner you want? Isn't that the spouse you're looking for? Isn't that the family you wanted? So righteousness comes through love. But righteousness also engages the whole person. Maybe that's already becoming obvious, but look at, look at how the uh, Shema works, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And Jesus, when he restates it, did you notice this? It a little, changes it a little bit. He says, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He takes the idea of might and separates it into your mental and your physical energy, right? Uh, so all your strength. I don't think he's trying to revise it. He's just amplifying it, right? He's, he's, talking, he's helping us understand more about what that might mean. And it's much the same way with uh, the Leviticus verse about loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Because we put more time into ourselves than we put into anybody else. I mean, isn't that true? <laughs> you put more time into yourself than you put into anyone else. So we're called to engage the whole person. And it's really just, I mean, in some sense, it's just this simple. Let's just ask this question. A couple questions of ourselves. 
What is your heart engaged with? Like, what engages your heart? Your desires. Where does that go? What is your soul invested in? Your sense of self. What is it invested in? Where do you expend your mental and physical energy? What is it you spend all your time thinking about? What is it you spend your time and energy doing? It's uncomfortable to sit with those questions, isn't it? You see, again, as we've talked about how Christians have often focused on law without love, this is part of the problem, is that we have not been honest. We have been more interested in announcing the law to other people than fulfilling it. We have been more interested in telling them how they've failed to be honest or promote life or marital fidelity or practice contentment. And rather, we've been more interested in that than rather actually asking, am I promoting the well-being of others? Am I practicing faithfulness? Am I honest? Do I respect others and their property? Do I honor my parents and the authorities in my life? Am I content with what God has given me? Do I have any other gods before him? I was... It's that outward turn with the law as a first move that's so problematic. See, because what we're asked is not... Is your neighbor keeping the law? It is, are you? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving the Lord? That's the question. Not, how do I make sure everybody else is? This is why things like the shooting in Atlanta are not surprising but predictable. Because somebody who grew up in the church, still active in the church, twists both a racial identity and a gender identity into problems out there that need to be done away with than the problem that he needs to deal with. sadly predictable. So can we name our idols? Can we name the things that we love more than the Lord? Things that we love more than our neighbors? The things that we've invested our heart in, our soul, our strength
And you might say, yeah, 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 I know, but I got to work on that. But there's these other people have these problems out there. Oh, really? Okay, maybe they do. But you haven't figured it out about yourself. You know, Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew 7. This is what he says. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus has a sense of humor, okay? Like, imagine this picture, right? Somebody's got a little something in their eye, and you walk up, and you've got a plank hanging out of your face. This is the image that Jesus is saying. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see what Jesus is saying? He's not not denying the fact that there's social ills and problems and injustices and things that we need to deal with. He's not talking about, he's not saying those things don't exist. He is saying, recognize that you dealing with your own heart is the first priority. And if you, yeah, 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 that you got the problem. That's the sure sign that you need to spend a little more time looking in the mirror to find that plank hanging out of your face. And so the issue is, you know, of course, if you're trying to help somebody get something out of their eye, and you're just hitting them over the head with the plank in your own face, it's not going to work very well. They're just going to end up bloodied, and nobody's going to be better off. But notice this, even if, and this is so helpful to see with Jesus' illustration, even if you get to the point where you're helping somebody get the speck out of their own eye, Have you ever done that? It's a gentle process. Can't just jam your finger in the person's eye. That even if, even when we are called to speak to the law as it regards other people, our priority ought to be gentleness. But I thought we were supposed to be winning, right? No, it engage, the, the law, real righteousness engages the whole person to love the Lord, to put our heart and soul into it, to give it all our energy, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, righteousness impl- implies love, and the whole person. But this is so key to understand that righteousness comes from somewhere else. Look at how this ends. Jesus had been talking to this religious professional, and, uh, and at the beginning of this passage, he comes up and sort of cuts through the silliness. I and mean, we've talked about this for several weeks now. There's been these different parties fighting about different things. You know, even a silly hypothetical that Tom took us through last, last week that was just, you know, ridiculous. And kind of gets to the core question, right? He's the expert. He knows how to cut to the point, right? What makes a good person? This is what he's asking. And then he ends by saying something fascinating, right? He agrees with Jesus. And then in verse 33, he says, all those things are right and are much more 
than all the sacrifices. And that gets Jesus' attention. (laughs) This guy compliments Jesus like Jesus has ever cared about anybody's compliments. But that, verse 34, we're told when Jesus saw he answered wisely, that gets his attention. You're not far from the kingdom. Because that man's answer, that little bit at the end about much more than sacrifices, is a powerful statement. It goes back to... 1 Samuel 15, to the original king, the original first king of Israel, Saul, and his failing in a bunch of different ways. There's a long story in 1 Samuel 15. He's supposed to kind of wipe out uh, these enemies. Instead, he sort of plunders them and then gives a flimsy excuse to Samuel that, oh, I'm going to sacrifice all this to God, which is probably a made-up excuse by the time Samuel arrives. And Samuel says to him, The prophet says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And this is a through line that goes, you know, goes through Psalm 51 is another important place, a psalm of repentance. It goes into Isaiah 1. This point that that kind of runs as a thread throughout the Old Testament not disregarding the sacrificial system, but making the point that if we had just followed what God had said, we wouldn't need to sacrifice. But that's the rub. That's the rub. See, that is why I think Jesus says to him, you are close, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. I think that's an invitation I guess you could read it cynically as like, close, Hmm. close. But I think it's an invitation because the guy goes silent. He's left thinking. And apparently everybody else is too. What could we be missing? What could we be missing? And the answer is they're missing that they can never keep the law. They can never do it perfectly. They will always need a sacrifice. And that is exactly what Jesus is there to do. This is where the story is going, is that Jesus is going to provide the sacrifice that we need. This is the key insight of this passage, is that while the law is beautiful, while that is powerful when it's filled with love, while it it, it engages, is supposed to engage the whole of your person, You will never do it on your own. You will always be found wanting. And look, even if you even if you're here this morning and you don't completely agree with what the Bible has to say about the moral law, okay, but are you living up to what you think you're supposed to be? And we spend a massive amount of energy trying to find different ways of proving that we're good enough. That we stand for the right moral principles, the right political stances. We have the right habits of eating and buying and all these other things that we use as badges that we are a good person. We spend so much energy on that. So much energy to perform righteousness, to convince ourselves and everybody else that we are good enough. 
And this is the unsettling feature of the moral law. The beauty of God's character is also the unattainability of it. Unless, of course, God enters in. And God gives himself as a sacrifice. One of my favorite theologians, John Owen, puts it this way. He says, the law was glorious when the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. It appears even more glorious when it's obeyed in the hearts of believers, but it is only in the absolute and perfect obedience of Christ that the holiness of God and the law is seen in its full glory. It's only there that we see love and obedience brought together. One who is faithful and true, trustworthy, not looking for something else better but rather intent to love at whatever the cost. This is the love of Jesus. This is the good news, that the, the powerful love that sh- was shaped by the perfection of the law. This is someone you actually want to be with. This is why Jesus was so attractive, even to those who were sinners, because he loved God and his neighbor to the end. Because this is the great mystery, the final act of fulfilling the law, of loving others as you love yourself, was that he had to lay down his life for us because we were stuck in sin. This is why, this is the good news. This is the great opportunity of realizing that you are a failure. Is that where we have failed over and over and over again, Jesus has not. And he's given himself on our behalf. And it's important to understand that when it comes to the moral law, the gifts of Jesus are twofold. First is what we call justification. That when you receive Jesus in your place, it means that not only are you forgiven, that he was judged for your sins, but that you are considered righteous before God. As a judge, God is no longer interested in the question of whether you are guilty or not because Jesus has been judged guilty for you. And you are considered righteous. Which means, so by the way, that means if you're a Christian and you're thinking, I screwed up again. I'm not sure God wants me. you couldn't be more wrong. Because Jesus knew all of that. Jesus knew how screwed up we were and went to the cross for you. But it's because we are already been judged, because we've been accepted, that the law plays a second role, which is what we call sanctification, fancy theological speak, Right, which means we're actually changed. That, by, that since we have received Christ in our place, we live out a new and renewed life. Learning to live life like Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law by loving us to the end. But we're not obeying trying to prove we're good enough. See, that would be to fall back and to think, I've got to, I've got to justify myself again. But rather, out of love, knowing all that God has done, for me, 
And he wants something better for me. And there's a lot of tripping and falling along the way. It is imperfect. But he is pouring into our hearts his love by the Spirit. So Paul says in Romans 5. So that despite your failings, despite your inadequacies, God is not failing. He will see through what he's doing in your life. This is why, and this is how we know what love is. That Christ gave his life for us. This is what it means to be a good person. Is first to receive Jesus. And out of our confidence in him and his goodness, to get on with the business of learning to change ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We thank you that we are not left to our own devices to be changed, but your spirit is at work. Give us confidence in everything that Jesus has done. Where we need to be convicted of our sin, Lord, we pray that you would convict us, but we pray that you would not leave us in our guilt and our shame, but rather convince us of all that Jesus has done on our behalf and change our hearts that we might love you more, that we might love our neighbors even as ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.